You're listening to the Economic Sensations podcast with Zimbalim Kuhn. Please don't forget to subscribe to and share the content in all our platforms. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Economic Sensations podcast. Uh, I hope you guys have been self-isolating, quarantining and following level three lockdown regulations in South Africa. So all eyes were on Cyril Ramaphosa's State of the Nation address uh, on the 11th of February 2021. This was after a, a day after the, 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 the first bout of stage three load shedding this year. So usually State of the Nation address is usually a glitter and glamour kind of event, but this year it was toned down significantly. So we are going to discuss uh, the State of the Nation address and also uh, what financialization is with an economist and also who's a scholar. Her name is Funzani Ntembo. Funzani, thank you for coming to the show. Welcome. Hi, Zimbali. Um, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We appreciate your time and the effort you, you did take into come and have a word with us and contribute to the show. I think uh, our first point would definitely be uh, from the State of the Nation address point of view. So uh, this year, the State of the Nation uh, address was more of, uh, was kind of direct uh, compared to other years, if I may say. Also, we might have noted that uh, the SONA was set out with, it had four priorities according to the to to the president. Mm. The first one being to defeat the COVID nineteen, accelerate the economic recovery, uh, implement structural reforms to create jobs and sustainable to create sustainable jobs, and drive the the inclusive growth, and finally to defeat corruption. Mm. So, what was your your analysis of of the state of the nation address? Were you satisfied with the with the address by the president, Funzani? Um, I, I, I think like many other people who are very critical of like, you know, um, what our government has been doing in terms of like our state of the nation addresses and budgets and whatnot, I can't necessarily say that I was um, satisfied. I do have like some of the critiques um, that I've noted down in terms of, um, particularly when it comes to um, the COVID, COVID-19 um, um, recovery plan and um, the ways in which it went about. Um, I just think that, you know, the implementation of a lot of the imp- implementation um, 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 of the recovery or not the recovery, but the, what is it? The, what package was this? The, the relief package, so the 500 uh, billion relief package. I do sense that, like, I, I do think that there was not necessarily the implementation didn't go as well as it should have um and i mean you look at the fact that much of the i mean it's it's even let's i think let's start here it's even a lie that it that we had like a 500 billion stimulus package right um because um when you look at um how much we actually had as a stimulus package it's probably around 120 billion or so um and the rest of the monies of the money is not necessarily a stimulus package. So 500 billion is, is, is kind of, um, it's, it's not 
the real like it's not true that we actually had 500 million of a stimulus package um i mean when you so, look so maybe sorry to disrupt you maybe to to clarify that by saying for you to say that uh, it is not true that we had 500 billion rand package uh, is it because that uh, the actual money that was there was the 120 billion referring to them the rest of the money was actually a uh, restructuring and reprioritization from the government's expenditure and, and, and how it was how the budget was supposed to be to be to be structured before before the relief package so the the rest of the money is coming from the reprioritization yes. of of the budget yeah so that's okay. the main reason why i'm saying that um the reason why i'm saying it, you know 500 billion is not a true reflection really of the money that um that is considered the stimulus package is because much of it was like the um you know the 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 reprioritization of the budget um and i mean 200 billion of that was actually in loan guarantee schemes um of which only about 18 billion of it passed right um so um uh, uh, and and that tells you exactly where that you know if 200 billion is out of the picture right that goes to the loan guarantee schemes um then we have 300 billion but that 300 billion much of it actually came from the reprioritization from the already existing um, um budget so about 120 billion um was actually the stimulus package but when you also look at the implementation and what has been going on you'd actually see because i was reading this iej um report on basically basically uh, 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 um, updating us in terms of like what was actually used out of that money, right? Um, and you actually see that, I think about the estimated that only one third of the 500 billion, the so-called 500 billion actually was utilized, right? And that's about 150 or something sure. billion. Um, and that tells you how there was, there's actually lack of of implementation and of course we know that you know there were PPE tenders that went wrong and there was corruption and the maladministration of our government and whatnot also affected and impacted that as well. So the main thing when you when we look at the overall um, you know uh, Sona, I think one of the key things was actually looking at uh, 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 um, what do you call it was actually looking at 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 um, our our government's ability to actually implement what they said and what they promised the people to implement through the 500 billion yeah the president uh, they did not include anything with regards to 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 gbv what was your your thinking when it comes to that i think it, it is quite typical of the president and you know the budget the finance minister to actually not um, well, the, of the president to not actually state the, uh, in terms of G, GBV when they speak about or just considering women in general when they speak when they speak about these um, when they when he has like a state state of the national address. But what we know is that they actually launched a GBV um, funding of about uh, I don't know how much it was. I don't remember how much it was, but I do know that I think last year. Um, there was a, a a promise of about 1.6 billion that will go towards GBV, but we have not heard um, as far as how those fundings have been used. Right? Um, we have not actually uh, been yeah. told um, 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 how those fundings have actually helped um, GBV uh, 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 organizations and whatnot. That has not been um, transparent. Um, 
and I think that is disheartening. Um, I do know that on the fourth of this of this month, they, they, we had um, a, GD, a GBV um, um, uh, fund fund launch, like just kind of launching the GBV funding to fund uh, you know organizations that actually um, fight against gender-based violence. But I'm also worried again about the administration of that and the implementation of that, and how is that going to actually be implemented? And I'm more interested, I think, in the details. And however, most of the times we are actually um, left without those details, right? But I think for me, beyond beyond mm. that, um, one of the things that is very interesting to look at when it comes to um, basically the support that women get from the government is, of course, you know, the child support grant, um, as well as infrastructure. And I think most of the times people don't actually understand how infrastructure development is very important in kind of um, ensuring that women's care work is made to be much easier, you know, um, and uh, because once we have good infrastructure that complements women's care work and domestic work, right? Um, uh, 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 so like, for instance, in rural areas and in the townships and whatnot, um, there's a need for a proper infrastructure in terms of electricity, in terms of schools, in terms of hospitals, in terms of water, in terms of all these things, because when the children are sick and the, the, the men are sick, the people that actually take care of, of these people are actually women, right? Um, and in, even within yeah. the household, the domestic works within the household are very much performed by women. So when there isn't easy access to water and electricity and all that, it becomes very difficult for women to perform, um, you know, a, a, a domestic duties, so to speak, um, with much ease. So that's one of the things that is actually quite important. And in that, this is not to say that, you know, care work is limited only to women, but majority of it is actually performed by women. And that's the reality of where we stand in our country, right? Um, so, yeah, so that's one of the aspects that is quite important for me when I look at um, most of these things, when I look at whether it be budget or SONA, um, you know, and of course, like the when it comes to the current issue as well, we have that aspect where, you know, you, you see that uh, 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 caregivers have been um, excluded from receiving the social relief grant, the 350. Um, and I think that they should actually be included in that. Um, by caregivers, I mean like women who actually get or individuals that actually get grant for their, for their children, um, you know. So they are actually excluded from the from the social relief grant, which I don't think is actually a fair um, position. Um, I think that's one of the aspects that needs to be interrogated and critiqued, um, yeah, quite a bit when it comes to the relief package. Also, also on the issue of 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 the three hundred and fifty uh, mm. grant, I think. Uh, my thinking is that okay, so the president announced that there's going to be mm -hmm. increased for the next three months. But uh, it is with no doubt that poverty has been increasing and inequality mm. has been deepening. What happens after these three months? Uh, do, we, do we let these people go even further, go down to, to worse, worse conditions? And what's, what's, your, what's your take on this one? Because I think uh, it's going to be a difficult one for, for the government actually to, to actually terminate the, the provision of the 350 rents. I mean, I think a lot of like uh, progressive organizations have kind of like you know um been uh, activisting um for 
basically the implementation of the long overdue universal basic income, right? Income grant. Um, and I think yes, that that should be like a, a um, because we live in a country where, you know, poverty and a lot of people actually live uh, um, under the poverty line, right? Um, so I do think that uh, we should actually like be working towards the implementation of um, 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 universal the basic income, the universal basic income grant um, um, to ensure that people actually do have, you know, to ensure that the quote unquote poor, I don't, the poor, I don't like using this term, but the marginalized rather are also integrated into a society rather than, you know, being, you know, part of the people that are not like, that are looked at as um, passive citizens who just things are being done for and whatnot. Um, but, you know, I do think that, that the, what do you call the universal basic income grant will in some ways help a lot of people to kind of like integrate themselves into the bigger and participate into, into the bigger broader society. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, the 350 is an insult also, like, um, I mean, <laughs> the food poverty line is around uh, 585, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and and I yes, think that yes. the kind of like the reasonable amount that should be that people should be getting 350 is um, for me I feel like it's it's an insult and also the the the, the queues men uh, the post office queues are also like dehumanizing I mean I've seen like people I mean I've heard stories and I've seen people sleeping you know good post office because they're trying to line up for to receive the yes. 350 grant so that's something to look at the payment system of that 350 um or rather if we were to have this um and hopefully and i really praying that we do eventually get to a point where we get this universal basic grant um that you know we would come up with a different payment system because we don't want people to be um, queuing for so long, you know, it's quite a dehumanizing experience. It's like those Nesfas <laughs> queues where you have to, you know, queue for feeling <laughs> Nesfas queue is even way better because, you know, um, you could at least get in a day finish your your stuff. If people have to actually sleep all yeah. at, the, at the post office, that is not, yeah, that is that that is not a good. Really yeah, it's very really dehumanizing. dehumanizing, and also. When you speak of, of uh, 350 rands, do you think uh, it is possible for, for this money to increase considering the fact that a uh, national treasure has been opposing uh, spending increases? It's very much possible. I think the problem is that obviously like we um, unfortunately, unfortunately reside over a country that believes in neoliberal policies, right? Um, and that means that like a yes. uh, large part of the the work that we are doing and, and trying to fight against is these very much neo, neoliberal policies. So of course, Treasury is going to tell us about um, the inability to, to, to increase this 350 uh, grants because, um, because austerity measures, for instance, and because you know that's the neoliberal, like the, the National Treasury has adopted a neoliberal outlook to, in, to the ways in which they actually run their policies. So, um, Yes, definitely. Like, uh, the, the, I'm not shook by the fact that you know the the national treasury is is actually saying, um, 
they uh, they won't uh, increase these or even extend. They don't want them at all. The universal income grant, right? So mm-hmm. I don't I don't foresee it happening under this umbrella that we exist in of policymaking, which is a neoliberal you know umbrella. There was an acknowledgement of 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 the of the of the private sector in the economy. So. So they rather let me say the importance of the private sector in the economy to an extent that uh, there was a, a the president did mention the 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 role that the private sector must play in terms of job creation and and sustaining jobs within mm. the, the the economy. So my question now then comes uh, here: Do you think the the private sector should be in the forefront of creating jobs, or it should be the government assisting? I mean, should be the private sector then assisting the the government in 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 the quest for job creation? I do think creation. absolutely that the private sector has a responsibility towards um, society, to for you know because the private sector is part of a social contract. It's not only the government that is um, supposed to be doing things for society, right? Um, and I think the, in the ways in which yes. the private sector has been has been quite very much. Um, what do you call selfish because obviously the private sector's interest unfortunately us living in a capitalist society um the private sector interest is mainly um the fact of 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 increasing shareholder shareholders interest right and that is also part of the 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 financialization that i'm actually working on the research financialization that i'm working on and how private sector um prioritizing shareholder interest actually does compromise job creation, right? So for the private sector, the the, the priority for them is to actually maximize shareholders' interest, is to maximize uh, shareholders' monies and capital. Um, And in that, what they do is that they actually compromise job creation in the process through a notion or phenomenon called shareholder buybacks. And I'll explain it later when we speak about financialization. But what I'm trying to say then is that um, the private sector, I do believe that the private sector has a role in um, 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 in, in our society, right? Um, one of the interesting things that I found sure. was that during the apartheid era, there was this notion of, um, what do you call uh prescribed assets, right? And much of, so the, the, the notion of prescribed assets is essentially the government telling um, um, asset managers to invest or rather to direct uh, monies towards development, economic development and the country. So there's actually, that becomes part of regulation. Um, so this notion of uh, prescribed assets happened quite, I think, a few years ago. It also, like, I think last year, last of last year, the, it actually, it did come out again to say, why are we not exploring this option? And much of the unions were actually for that, right? Um, to say that we must we must find a way to yes. find a sovereignty fund, right? Um, where we can actually dedicate money to towards economic development in our country. And how do we also implicate the private sector to be a part um, and be a part of that, right? Looking at investment and economic investment and uh, other economic 
development as an investment as well, because uh, much of the investment, of course, is, you know, when asset managers are investing money, what they're looking for more than anything is returns. Um, and that's still making money for shareholders and for um, the already rich. And they neglect the notion, the, the fact that they are part of a society and they also need to invest with, in the development of, of our country. So, yeah, so I, I do think that like there are other ways like the uh, prescribed assets and other ways of actually trying to foster the, the, the private sector to be part of um, of our, like, of, you know, like creating jobs and whatnot. But I, I do think that it will take a lot of regulations um, from the government. And I don't know if there is a political will for that to happen. You know, also knowing that um, the government is very much controlled by private business. True. So, so now we all know that uh, South Africa has been having uh, struggling mm-hmm. SOEs for the longest of time now. And also the, the, the president mentioned that uh, for, for, for the long-term growth dynamics, uh, the focus on, on expand, there was a focus on expanding uh, energy generating capacity. So quite surprising now the, the exclusion of, of SAA this time there was no mention of, of, of SAA, which is something that was, I don't know if maybe alarming is the right term, but uh, on the issue of ESCOM and unbundling of ESCOM, mm-hmm. uh, now we are going to move on to uh, what you, you your research basically covers, I think. Firstly, I think I need to first ask the difference between financialization and privatization, if there is any difference. Hmm. So privatization is, um, taking state-owned enterprises and um, so privatization is basically state uh, taking state-owned um, enterprises and either like obviously putting them on like JSE you know JSE to kind of uh, for public you know for 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 individuals and private entities to actually buy the entity, okay. uh, the, the entity's shares, um, or through private equity where individuals or like private entities can actually, um, you know, own the state-owned enterprises. So basically, it's no longer yeah. state-owned. So for yes. instance, when you look at telecom, um, I think part of telecom is, so uh, telecom is kind of like semi-privatized. So part of um, 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 telecom, I think about 39%, if I'm not mistaken, of telecom is owned by the state, right? And then the rest mm. of telecom is owned by private by, by the private sector. So basically, telecom is um, a, kind of like an example of what privatization is because it used to be owned by the state completely. And then they then decided to list it on JSE. So now it's listed on JSE and um, uh, uh, about 39% is, is, is owned by the, by the state. So that is partially partial privatization. And some of the economists are for that kind of strategy because they think that the government is not effective when it comes to administration and whatnot. But some of the more radical uh, economists, you know, are against the, the idea of privatization 
in totality because it means that you know um, uh, rates are now determined by the private sector and this may actually hinder on prices and accessibility in terms of like population actually being able to access certain things right so privatization is essentially us taking ESCOM and putting it on the JSE or um, uh, having it uh, be owned through private equity and then financialization when I think about it I mean I'm not really sure if uh, this is the actual case but when I think about it, I, I could say that privatization is part of financialization. Yeah, yeah. Okay. but financialization is um, because the reason why I'm saying this is because like financialization is essentially like the move towards financial markets, financial institutions and, and other financial actors as key to economics and economic growth of countries. So the fact of um, us having like um, financial markets, right? Um, we are yeah. actually, uh, you know, part of the phenomenon of financialization. I think in Africa, the most financialized economy is actually South Africa. And um, when that happens, usually, like it can actually implicate how we understand our policies and how our economy um, is, is so for um, yes. so for instance like um, so so for instance how financialization has found expression whether it be in South Africa and um, the US is through like I mean when you look at you know what happened with the financial crisis in 20, 2007 2008 that's part of financialization, right? Um, we saw how people actually like are financially engineering particular products in order for them to actually maximize their monies. So that cash was essentially about maximizing monies. Um, and so that yes. implicates a great deal of the economy. And of course it implicated us as well as South Africa and, and our South African economy. So with South Africa, when we look at the history of financialization, I mean, you can look back from the moment under like the apartheid government, right? So under the apartheid government, um, the dominant sector was essentially like mining conglomerates. Um, and, you know, they then decided like these mining conglomerates kind of decided to, I think towards the end of apartheid, right? Um, they kind of decided to diversify across the country's um, economy. And in the process, they actually incorporated like financial services into their mining houses. So in a sense, um, as we were moving from apartheid era to the now democratic South Africa, we kind of um, were ready, so to speak, to form part of the global hmm. financialization of the global neoliberal notions of the economy, right? So we're kind of like in some ways yes. um, financialized already. Um, and so it made it much more easier for us to then um, be part of the global financial markets, right? And so what then happens is that much of the companies that are owned, that are, that are like, so when you look at South Africa, for instance, um, a lot of like, I think uh, much of our GDP actually comes from the financial sector financial services or services rather, you know, I think majority of our GDP actually income comes from 
from the financial uh, uh, services. And that sector also employs a lot of people. Um, but you mm. see even within um, companies that are not necessarily financial companies, you see aspects of financialization in them through that notion that I was telling you about, the phenomenon that I was telling you about earlier called share, buy, uh, share buybacks. So yes, what yes. happens with share buybacks, and I'm going to try and be very clear on it, <laughs> but what, happened, yes. what happens with share buybacks is that companies usually, when their share price on the GSE is kind of struggling, right? Um, it's not necessarily yes. doing that well. It's not growing in the in the exponential or exponent that it's wanting it to grow. What happens is that shareholders, right, buy back, shareholders themselves, they buy back their shares. So what yes. happens is that when you buy uh, shares, right, that share tend to go up. So therefore, increasing oh, yes. So therefore, so when people are actually buying a share, it increases. The the the, the share price go, goes up, right? And that actually means that sure. um the share price is now looked uh, 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 is now uh now becomes. So sorry, I'm not explaining it right. What happens is that it's not the shareholders necessarily that buy the share the share backs, right? It's not the shareholders that buy the shares. But what companies do is that within the financial statement, they use their cash, right? So they use their cash yes. to buy back the share, the share. And then when you buy back the share, oh. then the share price goes up, right? And that increases yeah. the shareholders' sure. uh, uh, um, interest. So shareholders then become happy that their share, share went up. But the company, used its cash instead of the company you uh, 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 instead of the company using the cash from their ba uh, balance book to say maybe create more jobs um, increase productivity in the company um, increase people's wages and whatnot they don't do that they actually use that cash that they have to buy back shares so that they actually increase the shareholder interest of, sh of shareholders Am I making sense? Yes. So, mm -hmm. yes. So, so sorry a bit. So now I want to take you okay. back a little bit. So you mentioned that SA is the most financialized African mm -hmm. country, I think. So I want to understand why is SA the uh, identifies the most financialized uh, country? Because SA is um has the biggest uh exchange. What do you call JSE? Is the biggest essentially in Africa. Yeah. So financialization, I'm not necessarily saying that the economy, the South African economy is the biggest, because I think Nigeria still is the biggest. I'm saying that in terms of financial markets, the most active financial market is actually in Africa is actually the JSE. Um, the biggest financial market oh. in Africa is actually the uh, 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 JSE. So and much of our GDP um, actually comes from the service sector. Um, which is which is fi the financial sector basically, and also the financial sector employs. So, uh, finally, now I'm going to ask you uh, the implication of financialization on the SA economy. 
Um, so basically, it means that, uh, you know, like, for instance, the implication of financialization actually mean that we are essentially at the mercy of the financial sector and global capitalism. Um, and when we are making, for instance, because part of financialization is actually like taking the interest of foreign investors um, into account in terms of are they actually, it, like, is our assets in South Africa, are our assets in South Africa attractive towards foreign investors? Are they attractive towards, am I making sense? So are they attractive towards in, in, uh, foreign investors? And if that, is the, if that is not the case, then we must make sure that it does become attractive towards foreign investors. So most cases, we would probably like increase our interest rates. So our interest rates would, um, we prefer interest rates, uh, you know, according to the monetary policy that we have to be higher. And that means that, um, you know, the foreign investors and whatnot do get more return, right? Because our interest rates are higher. Um, and mm -hmm. when we actually look at it, I think we have the highest interest, interest rates in terms of in the BRICS, if I'm not mistaken, within the BRICS, we have the highest interest rates um you know and that's because we wanting to actually attract foreign investors into our country so much of our policy now i know it said finally so as you are speaking now a question comes to me that so what does financial financialization actually do for for the people on the ground actually it does it does um it pretty much damages their well well their livelihoods because now you must understand that our economic policy making, our interest and everything becomes that of global capitalism than actually, and being part of the global capitalist system, right? Than actually uh, yes. making sure that we, instead of that, we make sure that we implement things that are more, um, what do you call, economic development driven, right? So economic policies, I think it, there's a paper that I was reading um, that spoke about how our economic policies actually get um, influenced by the neoliberal, uh, the neoliberalism and the globalization um, um, policies, because then we have to actually adhere to particular standards. But those standards, they have adverse um, um, implications on us because also we are not a developed, we are not a USA. Right, we are a developing country. Yes. So now, instead of us focusing on the development of our country, we are actually focusing on making money for people that want to invest in our country. You know, um, so that damages sure. like the livelihoods of the people. Um, you know, that means that we are at the mercy of global capitalism, um, and we can't act outside of the neo neoliberal norms. Um, and so, therefore, this compromises a, our, a, our, the people on the ground. Um, it means that, like, our policies yeah. cannot be um, stimulus, so to speak, you know, for the people. And our policies cannot be, cannot consider, cannot prioritize social rights. 
in social development and economic rights. Sure. Um, so yeah, that's okay. that's the implication mainly. Thank you for honoring the invite to come into the for coming to the show, uh, Funzani. Your insights were really helpful to me, and also I think they'll also be helpful to everyone who will be listening to the podcast. Thank you so Thank much you so for much. having me, Zimbali. Um, it's been great having a chat, this chat with you. <laughs> I hope I didn't overspeak you, but yeah. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> Actually, if there was time, you would even continue to speak. So maybe we'll have you again on the show when you are presenting to us your, your, your yes, thesis. Yes, yes, yes. I'm working on that for this year. Um, and I hope I come with new information and find new interesting things because I really want to look at the implications of financialization on particularly Black people, but um, Black women as well, um, in particular as well. So, yeah. You're listening to the Economic Sensations podcast with Zimbalim Kuno. Please don't forget to subscribe to and share the content in all our platforms.